Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. What's up, Miriam? Long time no see, really, honestly. <laughs> on today's episode, we're discussing Unorthodox, a miniseries on Netflix starring Shira Haas as a 19-year-old Satmar woman leaving her Williamsburg community behind for a secular life in Berlin. As you might know, Unorthodox has been the subject of countless articles and online discussions, raising questions like, is the show authentic? Is it a true story or radical departure from the source material? And perhaps more than any other question, is it good for the Jews? Personally, I thought the show was compelling. It had a good cast and gave me an interesting look at a life I know little about. I recognized that it was a work of fiction loosely based on a memoir. I also know it wasn't a documentary and that it portrayed a point of view and a narrow, undoubtedly biased lens through which one can glimpse at, though hardly understand an entire community. Such is the nature of art, or at least that's how I looked at it. Miriam, though, I think you have a slightly different take. Boy, do I, Dan. Some of you out there will know this from previous episodes, but I was raised as an Orthodox Jew and spent a ton of time involved with the Lubavitch Hasidic movement. I went to a Lubavitch yeshiva for several years, and my college degree is in Judaic studies. I kept kosher. I observed Shabbat, and I was Shomer Nagia, meaning I had no physical contact with men. I dressed according to the Jewish laws of modesty, called sniut. This meant covering myself from collarbone to elbows to knees, wearing skirts, and being very careful about what words I used and how I behaved. I prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and night. In my early 20s, I left orthodoxy for atheism, becoming what is called by some an off-the-derech, or off-the-path, Jew. Leaving that way of life to which I had been deeply devoted, was a mixed experience. Sometimes it was hilarious, like my first attempt at ordering food at a Wendy's. Other times it was excruciatingly painful, and the fallout still affects my life on a daily basis. Nonetheless, I feel very protective of people, especially women, living an orthodox life. I'm sensitive to situations where I feel these communities are being exploited, misrepresented, or mocked for commercial entertainment. We live in a time when visible Jews, like the Jews depicted in Unorthodox, are the targets for violent anti-Semitism in the real world. Orthodox Jews are often viewed as other by both non-Orthodox Jews and people who aren't Jewish. I'm not a fan of anything that perpetuates that othering. I think some viewers, not you, Dan, are perceiving Unorthodox as a documentary, like this is an actual truthful examination of important issues. It isn't. It's a TV drama. Game of Thrones didn't actually teach about the historical intricacies of the Wars of the Roses, upon which it is loosely based, and Unorthodox doesn't teach us about Hasidic Judaism. And note I'm referring here to the show, not the memoir upon which it is loosely based. I believe that we need to apply the same criticism to this show as we would if it were a show about a Muslim woman's experience not made by a Muslim woman, or a show about any religious or ethnic minority not made by members of that group. The most important and authentic artistic works on those experiences are created by those who have actually experienced them. Efforts by people who have not lived these lives to create entertainment out of them sends up red flags for me because real representation matters. 
That's why I'm very happy that we're joined by an expert who is a Hasidic woman herself. Leah Kranz-Lipsker, a Hasidic feminist, Jewish educator, and mother of six, is the co-founder of Chabad of the North Shore and a member of the Boston Aguna Task Force at Hadassah Brandeis Institute. She's also a friend of the pod and previously shared her phenomenal expertise in our episode about Jewish divorce. So let's get her take on unorthodox and the conversations surrounding it. Leia, thank you so much for joining us on The Vibe of the Tribe. Sure. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I think that one definitive takeaway from the buzz around unorthodox is that people have so many questions and perhaps drew some inaccurate conclusions about Satmar and more broadly Hasidic Judaism. Could you give listeners a bit of a primer on what Hasidic Judaism is and how it branches out into sects or dynasties and what Satmar's place in that family tree is? Sure, absolutely. So Hasidism literally means the pious ones, and it's a particular brand of ultra-Orthodoxy. I think some of the confusion is that people think that everyone who's ultra-Orthodox is Hasidic. Actually, it's the other way around. Everyone who's Hasidic is ultra-Orthodox. But people who are ultra-Orthodox or very Orthodox are absolutely not necessarily Hasidim. Hasidism is a spiritual revivalist movement that emerged in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. And it really began in the Ukraine by a rabbi, a very dynamic rabbi, whose name was the Baal Shem Tov, uh, late, you know, late 1700s. And he, he was said to perform miracles. There's lots of Baal Shem Tov stories. But I think primarily for uh, the future of Hasidism, he really taught that every person can have a connection to God. He really talked a lot about personal connection to God. So that you see um, in the Hasidic world, the word God is used very, very often. It's not like for the rest of Jews, people are kind of uncomfortable talking about God. God comes up in every other sentence in the Hasidic world because of the emphasis that even a simple Jew, even a non-learned Jew, even a Jew who was just sort of a regular person, no matter how many mitzvahs they did, they could have a personal relationship with God. And what's really interesting is that the Baal Shem Tov himself did not um, have children or a dynasty that continued, but rather his students um, continued the concept of Hasidism and the joy and the prayer that was very typical of the Hasidism of the, of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. And they branched out into lots of different, so they moved um, throughout Ukraine, Russia, mostly Poland at the time, and they, they started kind of their own dynasty. So when you talk about different sects of Hasidism, what you're usually talking about, you're naming towns in Lithuania, you're naming towns in Poland, you're naming towns where these sects began. So Babov and Satmar, Labovich. Vizhnitz. These are all towns. These are the names of towns where they're, the first Rebbe sort of started. And although they're all branches of uh, the Baal Shem Tov's understanding of Judaism, with a big emphasis on Kabbalah, you know, they really have slight differences. So by the, by the end of the 19th century, even though there was a lot of pushback against Hasidism by ultra-Orthodoxy at the time, they believed that it would become sort of the neo-Hasidism that you see today, where people are kind of very spiritual but not religious. That was, I think, one of their big concerns. It didn't really happen, and it had grown tremendously. And it was, you know, by and large, very, very pious Orthodox people who were also 
like I said, very joyous. And sort of every sect had its leader who they called a Rebbe. And that's another very interesting piece of Hasidic life that doesn't appear in sort of ultra-Orthodox life. And the Rebbe is not just a rabbi who answers questions about halakha, Jewish law, but really um, almost a life coach who can answer questions about where you should move and, you know, all of that. You're really, your whole life is connected to the Rebbe. You believe that the Rebbe has some kind of um, direct connection to God, a very, very spiritual human being. Now, the last point I would say is that, sadly, most of these communities were completely you know, decimated during the Holocaust, and most of these Rebbe's and their followers died. There are obviously some who were saved, and one of the, the greatest uh, goals, I think, of those few who were saved, who moved to Jerusalem mostly and to parts of New York, mostly Brooklyn, their, their real goal was to recreate the communities that they lost. That's why they brought their dress, and they, they're very, very isolated. They wanted to sort of not become assimilated, which most Jews, of course, wanted to, and, and become part of American culture. They wanted to recreate literally those communities in Hungary that they left and in Poland. And the one, the one interesting piece that I've been getting a lot as I'm talking to people about this show is that most Hasidim that any regular kind of Jew anywhere in the world ever encounters for an actual conversation is a Chabad Chassid. And what, what's interesting is that they, they can't see how, how that fits into the idea of sort of this isolationist movement, because clearly Chassidim that are Chabad um, are very involved in outreach. So I want to just say one thing. Chabad Chassidim is really a quite, went in a very, very different direction, especially after the, the, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe not the previous, I'm sorry, actually the previous, yes, and the late, both of them, encouraged outreach. So because of that, they're much less isolationist, obviously. They're much more integrated into society. They're much, more, they're much less judgmental. They're, 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 they are teaching Yiddish in the schools, but they are not necessarily speaking it in the, you know, in, in, in the world. And they, they have a little bit more of a modern dress, right? They still have the long beards, but they're their hat as the, uh, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, Rabbi Schneerson, he turned down his borsalino. So it's just a little bit more modern, a little bit more, right? The wives look different. They're wearing these long wigs that look, you know, sort of more hip, more American, more beautiful. So while in the other Hasidim, uh, they intermarry very often. Someone from Vizhnitz can marry someone from Satmar. It's not that different, right? You'll never find someone from Chabad marrying into that community it's very, very rare. So it's Chabad, which most people really sort of do encounter in their regular communities, is a very, very different ground of Hasidism. And of course, this, this series is talking about the Satmar community. One last word about the Satmar community. The Satmar community is definitely one of the more isolated, I would say, communities in the sense of kind of very strict laws that really keep their community within the boundaries of their towns. They, they Satmar's live mostly either in Williamsburg or in Monroe. So they might be one of more of the strict communities of, of Hasidic, Hasidism in the world, but not by a whole lot, right? So for example, Hasidic women do not drive. They are not allowed to drive. It is considered immodest. And that is true amongst all Hasidic communities except Chabad, right? That's kind of the norm. Hasidic, Hasidic women who drive their children would not be allowed into their school, right? There's a there's real pushback against that. So 
in some ways, even though some things sound very extreme, uh, in the Hasidic communities across the board, they're kind of the norm, and Chabad would be a little bit of an exception to that. So that's kind of the general picture of Hasidim around, around the world. And as I mentioned in, in my intro, and, and you know this, Leah, from, from when we've spoken previously, Chabad Lubavitch was the movement that I had some familiarity with in my youth. And yes, I do remember my Rebbitson driving a huge school bus for 13 children around. So yes, it is quite quite different. It gives you an insight, a look, but it is a very different way of life, the Chabad Lubavitch movement. So thank you for, for clarifying that for our listeners. So sure. let's... Let's get to the the show a little bit. I know that you know talking about unorthodox has become kind of an industry unto itself in <laughs> podcasts and <laughs> webinars and frankly us right now. And you have received, I'm sure, many many questions as you've been on these podcasts and webinars. What are some that you've received most commonly from people who are unfamiliar with this form of Judaism and Hasidic Judaism after watching the show? So yeah, I've done I've done quite a few of these. I cannot believe the interest in this. It is is astounding actually to me. I'm wondering if there's some kind of intersection between people sitting around with a little time on their hands and this show coming out. Bingo. Right. If it wasn't during a pandemic. Yep. But you know, I did a I did a a Zoom sort of thing for the the Vilna Shul recently. They had 200 people who got on. Right. I mean, that's incredible. Paid. Right. This is not free. And uh, there was just so much interest that there's going to be a part two to that. Um, mm-hmm. I invited on some Hasidic women from the Samar community because as someone who grew up in Chabad, I don't know all the answers to all the questions, right? So it was a real learning experience for me. Dan, I think the answer to your question is most people really want to know, is it, is it true? How much of it was, was kind of exaggerated or, or just straight up not true? How, how accurate did they get it? I think that's the question I get most often. And we'll get into a bunch of those questions because we received several from our colleagues that we're going to kind of ask of both of you, but not yet. So on the flip side, what have you heard from, I would say, observant Orthodox Jews about the show? What's been the on the derech take? So here's the interesting piece. In talking to people from the Hasidic communities outside of Chabad, the surprising thing I get most often is, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or That's what I thought I you would hear. I heard about that, but I don't watch Netflix. My family doesn't watch Netflix. So we actually had two people um, on the show, like I said, it's on the show. One of them um, is a therapist, so she is maybe a little bit more modern, and she watched it. But her sister-in-law was on and spoke to this audience and had never watched it. And mostly I would say that's what I'm hearing from that part of the community. Mm. In the Chabad community, of course, it's a little different. There is more access to Netflix and all of that. And um, I think that's really interesting too. What I'm hearing in the, in the Chabad community is this is foreign even to us, right? Which is yeah. really interesting. Like there's a lot of questions like, is that really true? You know, the sex scene and other ones, other things. So it's very interesting to see that that is, those are questions coming from the secular community who really have no knowledge, but they're also coming from within the Orthodox community that can't believe that that still goes on. Yeah, because that was some out there stuff, I will say, and we'll get we'll get into that more. But that is not like, as as I said, being familiar in a, in a teenage years with the Lubavitch movement. That was not what I was understanding about how sex would be. But we'll touch upon that. So I, I'm a former journalist, and there is a saying in journalism, there's no cheering in the press box. And you are someone who is analyzing this show. But I have to ask you, 
Did you like it? Great question. So I read Deborah Feldman's book. I think it's difficult to watch the show without having read it. I don't know how I would feel. I didn't love her book, let me be honest. I'm actually obsessed with ex-posted books. I have every one of them on my bookshelf. I have had my own journey away from sort of the teachings that I grew up with. I've had struggles around, you know, my own views and have come to really, I have come to draw some distinctions between my, my theology and my practice as an adult and, and from what I grew up with. And what I found really interesting is that some of the stories from, from people who have left the Hasidic movement have a very, very broad, negative overview of the Hasidic world. And some of them are much more nuanced, especially the ones written by older people. There's a woman um, from the Chabad community named Leah Lax who wrote, I, I think, a very poignant book about her journey away from, away from her community. She had already had six or seven or eight children. So she wrote it as, you know, an older person. She actually was gay and she, she left the Chabad world in Chicago. There's um, the wonderful book by, by Shulam Dean, Those All, Not All Who Go Return or something like that. And that also, someone who wrote a book with, you know, four children and, you know, his story. What I found about Deborah, and I think she's probably a terrific person, so this is not personal at all, is that she just wrote the story very young. You know, I don't know what her story is long term. And I don't know how she's going to feel about her story, you know, in 10 years from now. But what I, when I looked, when I, when I watched Unorthodox, what I really felt is the same thing I felt about her book, which is that this is a very, very negative portrayal. And what I found really missing was the joy of the community. And so I just thought, well, maybe some of these things are right. I don't know. And I, I have since learned that actually almost everything on that in that film was right from her, from her perspective. But where's the joy? In other words, my sense is, why would anyone stay in a community like that? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, and again, this is like I'm learning too, what was, what did you find most plausible or implausible about the show? I, I will tell you one example from when I was watching it. And there gets, there's that part where her Kala teacher, her, her bride teacher who comes to teach her about sex before she gets married, informs her she has a vagina. And she's shocked about this. And to me, I was like, what are you talking about? How can a teenager who's gotten her period for years not know that she has a vagina? And when I, when I was growing up there, you know, we teenage Orthodox girls who were in yeshiva knew we had vaginas. So that was one that I was a bit like, what? Is this plausible? What it, were there bits of this show that you were uh, that you were just like, no, that's not possible. Or that actually sounds plausible. So again, I, I grew up in the in the Chabad community, but my mother is is a direct descendant of the Baal Shem Tov. Her family, her tree is uh, filled with strimals, right? My grandfather mm-hmm. was strimal. So I have cousins and relatives in that community. And so some things that might surprise other people didn't surprise me. And I would say that two things, the answer to your specific question. Sex education, of course, is non-existent in that world. It's non-existent in the Chabad world as well, pretty much. However, most of us have mothers and sisters who, you know, or even brothers, right, who kind of fill us in even in, uh, in, a, in an informal way. And so my experience, both for myself and my community and for the, the knowledge that I have in that community, is that that is almost impossible in a world in which Somebody, even though they don't have any access to the outside world and any access to sex education, they have a mother or a sister who would, right? In Espy's life, I think this is going to come up again and again in our conversation today because mm-hmm. it, it keeps coming up. 
you have to realize that some of this is a sheltered world plus, right? No mother, no sisters that I can see. That's a good a point. Clearly was not going to talk to her granddaughter, right? A survivor about sex. So I think a lot of this is really her story. Mm, that's a good point. So the issue of sex and sex education came up in the second or third episode, and it's one of the themes that runs through the show. And one of my colleagues wondered, does sex education for Hasidic women really begin either right before or on their wedding night? So I'd like to answer that, but I'd also like to just give a comment on that first uh, scene, that traumatic wedding scene. Number one, yes. That is authentic. I think that for most girls, even in the Chabad community that I grew up in, sex is not talked about in an official capacity. In other words, again, sisters, mothers, right? We talk about it. It's not that we don't. But the fact that a a college teacher or a bridal teacher might be the first one to actually talk to a kid face-to-face about sex, I think that is kind of common. And I think that what's really interesting is that that initial scene that seems so traumatic in the wedding and specifically the fact that they were not completely undressed and that there was no conversation. It was just like, let's get this deed done. I have to say that that was one thing for me personally that I said, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. And it was so fascinating for me to have a conversation with a Hasidic woman who lives in Sotmar, someone that I know who is a therapist. And she said, actually, that was spot on. That is something that I have heard from so many women was their wedding night. And when I said, how is that possible? She gave me something um, to really think about that I wanted to share with your audience. She said, look, it's not that they're told that they shouldn't wear clothes. That's a myth. And it's not that they're told they shouldn't be kind and loving. You have to realize that these two people are strangers. So when, 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 when a normal person looks at that, they think this is a wedding night. But you have to realize these people have seen each other twice, three times. That's it. They are complete strangers. What they are told is this is a really awkward, horrible thing that you have to do, right? In other words, not that it won't, that it will always be horrible. It will be wonderful soon. But it is painful. It's the first time. Get it over with. And then move on to getting to know each other and getting into a loving relationship. And so that first night is usually awkward and traumatic for everyone. Now, she, of course, has it worse because she has pain, which is about 10%, I'm told, of women have this. And I think in the Orthodox communities of any um, denomination, it's going to be worse, right? Because it's tension and it's it's fear. But I will say, I want to just uh, comment on what she told me, which is that within the first year, sexual relations become normalized. But that it is not possible in that society to expect a first night to look much different than what we saw, because it is traumatic. These kids have been given messages that there is a downside to sexuality, right? That there is, as Miriam said, some kind of immorality around it, right? Boys are told not to masturbate, right? Girls are told, be careful, you know, don't, don't, don't be immodest. So we expect these kids to somehow in one second on their wedding night, get all of that out of their mind and enjoy sex, it's not reasonable. And the rabbis and the college teachers know it's not reasonable. And so they tell these kids, get through that night and build a relationship and you will soon understand that sex is a wonderful part of marriage. So I want to just get on record here saying, I've got cousins in that community. I have friends in that community. This is not about what marriages look like. Because I do think that had Esty stayed with Yankee, 
it probably would have gotten better. He seemed like a nice guy, right, in the second part of it. So I think this is really just the outcome of what it means to keep sexes segregated to the extent that these do. This is a really great point, and thank you for bringing that up. I'd also like to say that for plenty of secular people, the first time you have sex is not great. So I think this is just like that on steroids. So as I I kind of like the show. I think I, I said this in the intro, but I, I, I did enjoy the show. I thought it was really entertaining. And one of the things that I liked the most about it was the use of Yiddish. And I was curious to know whether other Orthodox Jewish communities speak Yiddish in everyday life. So I will say, Dan, and I agree with you, the best part of the movie, I'm sorry, of the miniseries or whatever you want to call it, the Netflix show, was the best part of the show was the Yiddish, because I think they got that incredibly spot on. I think that every bit of that Yiddish was excellent. I happen to know or know of the the guy who, who actually, he, he was part of it. I can't. Yeah, he was the rabbi. He was their rabbi who sent them on the mission to Berlin to get her back. That's right. That's right. So he was also the consultant on the show. And I think that, that he did a good job specifically on the Yiddish. So the, to the answer to your question, in those communities, Yiddish is entirely spoken in almost every Hasidic community. It is the mother tongue of every child, but it is also spoken in everyday use. So it is absolutely alive and well in Hasidic Brooklyn. In fact, even in Israel, interestingly enough, Hebrew is not considered a, uh, a language for everyday use because it is, you know, the language of the Zionists or the language of the Torah. So right. it's used, of course, for biblical conversations, but in everyday use, Yiddish is actually considered the holier in some way, right? The, 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 the language that keeps them separate. And in Hasidic circles, you'll hear very often that the Jews were, the, the Jews were saved from Egypt in the times of the slavery because they didn't change their language and they didn't change how they dress. So there was, there's something very, very important in the Hasidic community of a language that doesn't allow people to assimilate. And I will say, if you speak to people who leave the community, not again, not in Chabad, because there's much more uh, English there, but in other communities, having to just speak English, you know, out in the world as adults, doesn't come naturally, and, and it's actually something that, that becomes a barrier for people trying to assimilate into the world. Mm-hmm. I've noticed within myself a strong urge to fight people on the internet about this show, often in defense of what I guess we term ultra-orthodoxy, even though I left because I had criticisms, and yet I'm very, very protective. So if someone starts in about something like going to the mikvah, which we see in the show, and they say how horrible or anti-woman the mikvah is. I will go off. I am the daughter of a shomeret. I've been a shomeret myself. I've, you know, so criticism without context bothers me because mikvah can be a meaningful and powerful ritual for people of any gender and is often unfairly maligned by people who have never done it. And this is just an example of one ritual they they show on the show. What are your thoughts about the way in which the show handles Jewish rituals? I think my answer would be the same as, as, as sort of my, my overview of the show. I think that it is, like you said, really important to put any experience into context. And the bottom line is, is that this show, if it was a show about Hasidism, did a bad job in that because they did not include any of the positive and the beauty and the, of any of it, just the life or the rituals. And so therefore, 
in some way it was very slanted. But I will say I did watch something, and I'm sure many of your audience did, with the director who answered mm-hmm. this question. I forget her name right now. And she said, look, we weren't trying to tell the story of the Hasidic community. We were trying to tell Esty's story and Deborah's story. And we were not concerned that we were going to get the, the Hasidim's story wrong, right? The community story wrong. We were only concerned that we were going to get Deborah's story wrong or Esty's story wrong. So I think it's really important to understand that this was someone's story. And for that person, it was negative. Everything was negative. So I am positive that the mixed experience for her was horrible. You know, do I know people for whom mixed experiences are horrible? Sure. But by and large, you know, I sort of thought, you know, go with your gut, Miriam, which is that these rituals are beautiful. I'm not someone who, who left the community and wants to bash it. I really believe that there's incredible richness and beauty, even though it's not perfect. And uh, I agree with you that this if this is your only view into the Hasidic life, you're going to come away with, with some real misnomers, real, real, real things that are really just not, not either not accurate or really incomplete. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, one of the things that Unorthodox has done is trigger a lot of questions. I'm not sure that, you know, people are drawing conclusions. If they are, they might not be correct, but they are asking a lot of questions. And we asked our colleagues at CJP, what do you want to know about Orthodox Judaism after seeing this show? And we did actually touch upon sex ed already. So I'm going to skip to the, the one after that, which is, why do some Hasidic women shave their heads as depicted in the show and then wear both a wig and a scarf on top of it? Hmm. So all right, I'll give you the technical reason first or the halachic reason, um, Kabbalistic actually, and then I'll go back to the trauma scene where she shaves her head because I think both of those are, are a little bit different questions. So Hasidic women cover their hair, I should say. Orthodox women, let me, let me start this way. Orthodox women cover their hair after they get married because of a biblical or at least Talmudic understanding that hair is considered erva, in some way tempting or immodest, and therefore um, needs to be needs to be covered once the woman becomes married and is attached and unavailable to anybody else. Right, so only her husband can see her hair. The Kabbalistic understanding of hair is that it has some kind of energy or power. And this is not true for sort of the way that you would normally think about halacha in the Orthodox community. This is really a capitalistic overtone of this conversation. And this is true with the beards, right, that, that, the, that the Hasidic rabbis have, understanding that, feeling at least, that if they cut that beard, there's going to be some, some kind of loss of some kind of spiritual power, that there's some connection between spirituality and facial hair for a man. For a woman, it's, it's similar in the sense that the hair takes on some kind of spiritual nature, but it's the, it goes in the opposite direction, right? So that the Talmud says that there is one woman whose walls of her house never see her hair and she is praised. And even though that is extreme, and the Talmud says right there in that text, we don't rule that way, right? Certainly woman does not have to cover her hair when she's in her house. But the, the Hasidim picked up on this Kabbalistic understanding and really shut down sort of the idea of hair, which is definitely a sexual part of every woman. They shut that down even within the home. And so one of the rituals that came out of this is the shaving of heads so that a woman would not be tempted to have her hair out, right? So that there wouldn't be kind of, you're almost inhibiting 
part of a woman's sexuality when you when you take her hair off. Hair is very connected, right? We have bad hair days. We don't necessarily have bad, you know, elbow days. So I do think that there's a connection between sexuality and hair and the shaving of the head kind of shuts that down completely and doesn't um, give someone the temptation to take some hair out of a hat. So the question that you asked about things that they wear on top of their wigs, that's about modesty. So a long, sexy wig, right, according to many, almost all of the Hasidic communities outside of Chabad, is a problem for just for, for modesty issues. And therefore, what they want to make sure is that people understand that these wigs are wigs and not hair. So the rule is in most Hasidic communities that hair cannot, even wigs, cannot go past the shoulder. You don't see long wigs. And even when they're shorter wigs, something is put on top of it as a symbol that this is a wig and not hair. That said, the um, most astounding thing, the most astounding thing I have to say that I heard after I watched the show, I called someone I know in the Hasidic community who later came on to a show that we did in the Vilna Shul. And I said to her, you know, tell me what was sort of spot on and what struck you as completely wrong. And I was shocked to hear her say, the first thing she said to me, the scene where the woman shaves her head as, a, as traumatic, that struck me as being completely inaccurate. And I said, how can you say that? Isn't shaving your head traumatic? And she said, no, we grow up knowing that when we get married, we're going to shave our heads. It is not traumatic. It might be a little sad, but I don't know any, anybody, not, not, my, not me, not my sisters, not my friends, who would say that was a traumatic moment. And that was her experience. And that was really shocking to me. But I guess, as in the Chabad movement, you grow up knowing that you're going to cover your hair with a wig. And I'm not saying that every time a girl goes to the wig store, it's dramatic, right? It's just part of their culture. And so I do think that while the outside world looks at that shaving as a, as a just almost Taliban-like, right? I mean, just crazy. We need to understand that this is, this is just, this is what their mothers did. This is what their grandmothers did. This is what their sisters did. So I've now concluded that based on my physical appearance, I'm going to need to make my beard a little bit longer because my power yes, is not on top of my head right now. Okay, another question we had, you know, this, this community that SD belongs to is in Brooklyn, in one of the largest, most modern cities in the world. The young people portrayed in the show, like Yankee, seem to be so protected from the outside world that they are petrified when in another large modern city, such as Berlin. Is this realistic? The fear of the outside world? Uh, absolutely. There's an organization called Footsteps that you may or may not know about, which was founded actually by a Chabad girl who left. And um, I think it serves maybe 200 of these kids a year who come out of these very insular communities and really have no idea how to behave in the world. They need help. They need therapy. A lot of their families, almost all their families, stop talking to them. So this organization, which is funded by Jews all over the world, is providing therapy. They're providing, you know, education, like just getting a GED, help with, you know, finding an apartment, but also training. Like, this is how you talk to a girl, right? Yeah. This yeah. is how you, this is how you speak English. This is what, this is how you sit in a restaurant. This is how you um, interact in a uh, job interview. So, yes, I think there is absolutely a, a real traumatic reintegration into the world. I'm not sure if it's a reintegration, maybe it's just an integration. I will say one thing that I found interesting, and that is that of all of the entire um, series, what I found so ridiculously implausible and completely inaccurate is the ease in which SD 
uh, falls into her new life. Thank you. Thank you. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's absolutely uh, ridiculous. A, a lucky encounter at a coffee shop. Yeah. Oh, man. And also, she has sexual issues with her husband, but somehow she falls okay. into the arms. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I have to say just one more thing, that I think it was a disservice. I understand why they did it. And the director said, look, we only had five shows or six shows, right? We had to do it quick. But I will say it was a disservice to all of the struggles that you hear coming out of these kids who leave, both kids and adults. And I think it was really a disservice to say, oh, it's just really a simple thing to move from one world to the next. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That was one of my biggest problems with the show as well, in particular, the sexual aspect where we are informed in the show that she has uh, a medical problem that is um, preventing her and Yankee from consummating the marriage and causes her extreme pain. And yet she meets this hot Berlin guy and magically everything is solved. And I think that is a huge disservice. I know the idea that she goes to a club, she has fun dancing. And then all like she has sex with this guy and everything is solved magically is I I felt really let down by that. I I don't know if that's a personal read that I'm having on it, but I felt that was just completely beyond reality. And, And not just for any Orthodox woman, any woman who's been through a sexual trauma, I think would say that that's ridiculous. Also, I want to say Yankees. Um, oh my god flip-flop right i mean he doesn't know how to even like literally talk to his wife in bed right he's ready to shave his pants off right in that last scene or the scene before magic because he talked to a hooker and that solved everything (laughs) and even just his even just you know the whole thing the the berlin scenes were really kind of ridiculous ridiculous okay sorry i did and i had heard it the, the everything that happened after Esty left Williamsburg is a departure from the book, which is where it starts to get really wacky, is is one of the things that I I had heard about the show. Uh, I have another question that I wanted to put out there to both of you, I guess. Why is Esty or any woman or girl singing or performing considered to be immodest? Yeah, there's a piece of Talmud that talks about a man who wakes up uh, supposedly next to his wife. And the question is whether he can recite the Shema prayer. You know, people didn't sleep with their clothing on in those days. You know, pajamas wasn't was rare. So the question is, what is considered erva? That's the Hebrew word for uh, nakedness. And there, a conversation ensues between the Talmudic rabbis. Um, one says, well, you know, certain parts of the body, right, are considered erva, and therefore they have to be covered. He can't recite Shema until they're covered. And one says, no, the hair, hair on a woman, you know, is, is erva, and therefore the hair has to be covered before a man can say Shema. And one says the voice of a woman is erva. And there's a lot of back and forth about what that means. But the way that the law was formalized in, in, in halachic tradition is that a woman's voice has some kind of sexual connotation to men. And therefore, she sings only, you know, sort of in front of her husband. But even girls do not sing in public. And that law has a lot of nuance. So there are many girls who will sing in public as long as there's a few girls, right? There are many girls who will sing in public if it's the people singing together but not alone. So there's, there's a lot of nuance within that law. But by and large, if you're Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox in particular, women don't sing. I will say that they got what they got really wrong is that women can't play piano. Yeah, there's there was no prohibition against that. Yeah, and that was just spot on wrong. I, I will say that this movie is based on a movie. I keep calling it a movie. This uh, uh, series is based on a, a book that was written, I don't know, 20 years ago 
or her experiences in the book were 20 years ago, the Hasidic community has evolved like every other community. So it could be that women, you know, or women in her circle didn't get music lessons then, but certainly today. That is not true. Yeah. And Dan, I want to remind you, we actually learned in when we were doing Daf Yomi in Brachot, I think we learned about that, the bit about saying the Shema. So we talked about the Shema a lot that we month. Talked didn't we talked about the Shema a lot in Daf Yomi. This is the another one of our good questions from colleagues at CJP. And this is probably more directed toward Miriam, but both of you know, feel free to answer both of you. Once you leave the community, what is the dynamic actually like, as opposed to what we saw in the show? Are people shunned, or does the community want people to come back in? Well, let me briefly touch on my experience, because it is quite different than a lot of people. I'd like to know that, firstly, I wasn't raised in a community. I grew up in western Massachusetts. There was a Chabad house, so we were affiliated with that family. So it was it was not like there was a huge community where I grew up and, you know, if I left, it would have great impact. So there, there is that difference. We were living a, a religious life, but in relative uh, isolation from other Orthodox communities. When I left, there was certainly within my own family, you know, uh, with my mother in particular, who was Balchuva. That's a Jew who goes from secular to religious. So for her, her movement throughout her life was from secular to religious. I picked that up for a while and then, you know, I fell off. So there was that for a while, tension in my family. It was really, really hard. However, I will say that because I do work in the Jewish community and I'm committed to Jewish literacy and things like that, for example, when I started doing Daf Yomi, my Chabad uh, Rebetzin from back in the day, who I've known since I was like eight years old, sent me a message about how great that was, that I was writing about Daf Yomi, that I was doing Daf Yomi. And, and there was a sense of you're not part of the community, but you're still contributing something positive to it. So I'd like to say that my experience is not the same as other people. So I can only speak to that. And I'm very glad that that she reached out with that positive interaction. So I'll, I'll just add to that and say that my personal experience has been the same. Again, I am married to a Chabad rabbi. I have four daughters who are Chabad. So I definitely am not someone who has left the community. But I will say that, you know, I my, my practices in theology is not exactly embraced. And yet, within my family, within even the greater community, there is, I've only felt love and acceptance. So that, that's been great. I will say something else just more personal. I have, like I said, six, I, I, we've said in a different podcast, I have six beautiful, wonderful Baruch children. Hashem. And, Baruch Hashem. And two of them have left. Two of them would, you know, sort of uh, identify as ex-buses, I guess my two boys. And during this quarantine, right, we're all here. There is, my son came home with his girlfriend and, uh, you know, lived in my house for two months. There is, within the Chabad community, there is absolutely, almost across the board, acceptance of children, no matter what their choices are. And really, the rabbinic community really emphasizes that the real the, the, the Hasidic tradition of loving every Jew, right, and being non-judgmental, that needs to extend to one's own children. So I think in the Chabad movement, there is not that shunning. I will say very clearly, that is not true in the communities in Satmar and Williamsburg. They are not into outreach, right? It's not like they are, they're judgmental, we're judgmental strong, but they they are not welcoming to Jews of other traditions and right. So across the board. And so that, that will extend their children. And there are children who are completely shunned. Absolutely. That goes on today. That's always gone on. I do think that the, that there are families who are more open minded. I think that 
as the years go by and more of these kids are leaving, I think there is an attempt to at least uh, stay in contact with these kids. I don't think anyone sits Shiva over these kids anymore, right? Like we used to in uh, in Poland. So I think there's some movement, but you can't compare the Hasidic traditions between Chabad and others. We really need to ask about Esti's story and Deborah's story and others like Shulam Dean, whose children are taken away from him. And I think those stories are not that uncommon. Yeah, yeah. So the, the last of the CJP questions, and this is from a colleague very close to me, it's actually me. In one scene, Moisha denounced the Zionists. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship with Israel among various Orthodox communities? Because this has always been something that that has fascinated me, and I've seen it portrayed in other shows. And it, it just I, I have not gotten a, a grasp on the Israel Orthodox relationship. And we know this is like a topic for 12 podcasts, so... <laughs> We know we can only touch upon it here. You have 15 seconds. Right <laughs> okay, I can't do it in 15 seconds. There's two, there's two parts to that question. I think the first part is historical, and really, really, people don't get this. The reason that the ultra-Orthodox community did not embrace Zionism in the beginning, okay, this is pre-1948, is because there is a halachic, a legal, Jew, a legal Jewish idea that life comes before any mitzvah, right? You can drive on Shabbat if you have to save a life. They believed, as I think is true in Jewish law, right, that having a land is a very important thing and moving to Israel and Israel is holy and we all, you know, rah, 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 we all love it. It is not worth uh, losing lives for. They did not believe that fighting and the knowledge that they were going to lose hundreds of thousands of their soldiers in order to recapture Israel, when there is no Messiah, right? So there is no, there's no overriding reason to do that. They didn't believe that was in accordance with Jewish law. And so across the board, ultra-Orthodoxy believed, if you want to move to Israel, move to Israel. We believe Israel is holy, right? There was always ultra-Orthodox presence in Israel. But to create an army and fight knowing that you're going to lose law, uh, lives, that was not something they believed with, was within uh, Jewish law. So that's, that's first of all. And I think that is a legitimate halachic you know, view on the beginning of of, the, of our of our history as as, uh, as as in Israel, but the question is what happened afterwards, right? So you know that happened, right? 1948 happened, as we know, the Zionist leaders were were by and large secular Jews, and we did win that war, and suddenly we now have you know millions of Jews living in Israel that need to be protected, and so now it kind of flips, right? Now. In order to protect Jews, we have to go out and fight these wars. And so by and large, the ultra-Orthodox community, I include the Hasidic community and certainly the Chabad community, embraced Israel and and sort of got on board, right, with the Israel uh, project. However, they, they kind of draw the line and say the Zionist leadership were wrong in the beginning, in addition, they were secular Jews who were really looking to create a new kind of Jew, right, who was not, not Orthodox. And they, in particular, had an issue with Hatikva, which is a song that does not recognize God's part, or at least explicitly, in, 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 this, in the miracle of Israel. And so what you have is a very strange nuanced policy amongst all Hasidim, and I include Chabad in here, where they love Israel, they believe in Israel, they live in Israel, they encourage their children to move to Israel— and yet, of course, they don't serve in the army, and they, by and large, because they're yeshiva students, and in addition to that, they will not get up and sing Hatikva in public. 
and that becomes very, very sticky, right? But the 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 percentage of Hasidim who are standing with those signs in front of APAC who are anti-Zionist, that is ridiculously low, yeah. right? They're very loud. Yeah. But that is ridiculously low, even in Satmar and all of those communities. So I think that it's, it's a complicated, nuanced question, but they would, most ultra-Orthodox, especially Hasidim, would not call themselves Zionists, but they would say that they love Israel and they love the Jewish people who are, you know, who live there. So it's, it's a nuanced Yeah. So, well, I laughed through a ton of this show, mostly everything involving Moisha. One bit really did ring true to me. And that's in the final episode. Esty delivers a truly powerful rendition of her Yiddish wedding song. She sings it on stage as her audition um, to be accepted into the music conservatory in Berlin. And she needs to pull from her past experience to be authentic and special enough to be considered. I've often felt that way as well, where I need to access part of my past to forge ahead. So like when I've gone through tough times in my life, I find myself bolting, belting a don olam to my dog in the car, just on like repeat, just like I need to do it. And I have this job at Jewish Boston in no small part because of the knowledge in, of Judaism I gained in yeshiva and as an Orthodox person. So my past that I left is the key to my future. Do you think that this is a common feeling or experience for off the derech Jews or just because I work in the Jewish community? (laughs) So I have a 28 year old son who is doing a PhD in Jewish history at JPS who, who would, would call himself an expert. And what's interesting is, is that I I feel like there's, there's different kinds of kids who leave and there's different kinds of reasons Mm -hmm. they leave. Mm -hmm. There are kids who leave uh, for theological reasons. In other words, they didn't have a bad experience in the Chabad community or in the Hasidic community. They just simply don't believe anymore, right? And so ritual doesn't appeal to them. These kids are usually close to their families. They'll, they'll agree to go back for a Rosh Hashanah dinner because of the nostalgia, as really you just said, right? There's a warmth, there's a love, right? There's kind of, you know, just, it's not for me. There are other kids who leave because they've had bad experiences. And the entire tradition has been really a cause of a lot of sorrow in their life. So when you look at the the kids who leave, I think that there are two different kinds and we can't lump them in one category. And so the answer to your question is, I think for some people, they want nothing to do with it. They won't, it's not like they become reform or conservative. They're done with all of it. And they're really not looking to go back. And maybe it comes back 30 years later, 40 years later, right? But for most of And then there are others who really, like you said, try to uh, build an authentic self that doesn't shut out any part of them. And I will say that that speaks to my experience much more, right? I really am trying to, for, to, to move forward in a way that honors um, everything I love and also, you know, acknowledges that there are things that I struggle with and to, you know, come up with something that, that doesn't kind of, Um, have any blind spots, right? Where, well, all of that just didn't exist, right? That's been my experience and yours. I don't think that's true of people who really um, were, were traumatized or pained by their experience. That's a really great point. Okay, so last question for you. If you were making a TV show or a film centered on a Hasidic community, what stories would you want to see told? Wow, great question. I love the stories that have to do with the Rebbe's. I think that's a part of Judaism that most people don't have a clue about. I love the stories that have to do with community, right? So, you know, all Jewish communities have community of some kind, obviously. 
But in the Hasidic community, it's incomparable. You're talking about people who go to seven weddings in a week. Yeah. Or literally just, you know, going from bris to wedding to uh, upsharon to, right? So that's a story that I think is, is really interesting and it needs to be told. But I have to tell you, my own interest really is not so much in the people who leave, but the people who stay and struggle through it. Yeah. That's really stories that I would like to see told. What is it like for someone who might have some questions about birth control, about covering hair, about women's learning, about any kind of issue, right? And yet understands that there is so much beauty and there's really not that much better out there, right? And wants to somehow stay and make it work. Those stories of which I personally know so many are, are really stories of courage and stories of great authenticity that I think are not told, right? We're only getting the extremes. And I'd love to see those stories told a little more often. I would too. Yep. I'm with you with that. I'm sending a note to Netflix. Yes. I'd Can like someone tell too. Netflix? I'd like to see them too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both. Miriam, you actually, you did double duty you know, asking the questions and answering them and lay up for your incredible insights. It's just such a joy to talk to you now. You know, I've heard you on the other podcast and to actually be able to converse with you today is just fantastic. So I thank you both so much for, for doing this today. Thank you, Leah. You're welcome. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me on. It's been a joy. Listeners, be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan.